Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast. Uh, I'm your host, or one of your hosts, uh, Adam Jaziorski, and with me, as always, is Josh Thienpont. Welcome. Thanks for coming back. And today, what are we talking about? We are talking about bioindicators. All right. You had me at bioindicator. So, just for general background, because we're um, obviously paleo people that are very familiar with this term, but what would you use for a rough uh, definition of the term? Again, it just like you started the last one asking me to define paleolimnology was what is it with these with these questions to start off throwing it to Josh to define things. Uh, that's a tough one, right? There's so much stuff in the sediment. You can find all sorts of different things. We've got the chemical, the physical, the biological. So we're obviously into the realm of biological remains of organisms that existed in the lake or in the catchment around the lake and left some sort of material behind. But I think a key part of the indicator part is that they are indicative of conditions in their environment. Sounds good to me. So yeah, so the idea of where these things are become useful is due to the fact that environmental concerns usually only arise after a problem has been recognized. And so there is no, often no direct monitoring performed. So by using the sediments and the remains of little animals and plants that uh, preserve in the sediments that accumulate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, there's an archival record that you can visit back, um, going back as far as you need, depending on the thing that you're interested in. And one of the, what I've always thought is one of the cool things about, again, paleo, this is more paleo in general, but applies to new bioindicators as they're developed is the indirect nature is you can always revisit old sediments and old cores with new techniques uh, to perform reanalysis as things are developed. For sure. You never know when you're taking a sediment core, how far into the future that mud will be used for all sorts of different analyses to pull out different indicators, apply things that hadn't been invented or hadn't been really well defined or identified in order to say something about that environment. Uh, and then thinking about going forward and, and uh, continuing on from my very rough definition, uh, the idea that there's all sorts of stuff in the mud, but one of the key things is obviously this preservation component that you mentioned, but then the other thing that can be really helpful is their distribution and how widely distributed they are. Something that's incredibly narrow in its range environmentally uh, in a given location uh, may not be the best bioindicator, though it can tell you something about the more unique aspects of that habitat, but may not be as broadly applicable as some of the others. Exactly. And yeah, and then going along characteristics, another key one is a rapid reproductive response or rate so they can respond quickly to environmental change. So the idea being that something as big a fish that has a life cycle of years uh, is not going to show you a response anywhere as quick as something that uh, is microscopic and potentially sure. going through multiple, if not many generations during a single growing season. Yeah. The leatherback turtle is not an amazing bioindicator for that exact reason. Exactly. And, um, um, and then also the smaller you go, um, the more abundant that their remains are likely to be, um, so that you can find lots of them to work with. Cause again, 
And this comes into, uh, you know, quote unquote rules of what makes a good indicator. But uh, that abundancy is often um, needed in order to get a decent assessment. So you're not working with just one or two individuals and trying to say, this is what a certain area was like in a certain period of time. Yeah. When well, every it does gr- happen. Yeah, for sure. When sometimes. every gram of mud is, you know, costing hundreds or thousands of dollars to procure, if you have to go through five, six grams of wet weight in order to find the number of indicators that makes it kind of statistically relevant, then maybe that's not the best option. Whereas it's always, whatever is it we say, the amount of sediment on the head of a pin is enough to get hundreds of diatoms, which we'll talk about in a second. So there's a cost benefit analysis to be had for how useful it is and how applicable they are and what they can tell you versus how much effort both in the field and then also in the lab it takes to come up with uh, uh, reliable information from those indicators. And then uh, the next key one is that you're able to identify them, that they're taxonomically diagnostic. And this is what makes paleo such a slow analysis so much of the time is usually have to spend a lot of time looking through a microscope, looking at keys, looking at lots and lots of identification guides and pictures to really learn what those individual varieties of diatoms are or what their name is this week. (laughs) I've never actually really had to deal with that being more of a invertebrate guy, but still. Well, we learn things all the time and we readjust where things fit in the tree of life. And uh, that's part of part of understanding that group or those groups. And then finally, once you've found lots of your organism of choice, you have lots of identified remains. Next thing is that you need to have a well-defined idea of their optimum tolerances or like what kind of environmental conditions that they prefer and are most commonly found in. Yeah. And that's a hard one. That's uh, written down here. as we were thinking about what to say is that that's the one that gets bent the most. Uh, There's, No, not a single, none of these environments are univariate. There's lots of different variables that are changing in different uh, gradients in terms of the water temperature, the pH, the salinity of the water, the light availability, the biological interactions. So there are all sorts of different things that are going together and being able to pull apart those potential drivers and where those species fall along those environmental gradients is really, really challenging. Um, doesn't mean that they're not incredibly useful, but it means that you have to think about what's going on in that lake as you're trying to calibrate them, whether statistically or just in your own mind to the, uh, to the condition you're interested in. Yeah. And one of the things that I've, Again, of the many things that I think has been cool about Paleo is the whole idea that there are subsets of these remains that have well-defined optimum tolerances due to spatial analyses, but not necessarily a strong idea of what organism that they're related to um, um, in, not real life, but... For example, chronomid larvae, like the larvae in many cases, in a lot of, in some cases have been identified as the larvae, but it's not entirely sure which adult species corresponds to sure. the larvae. Yeah, chrysophytes, cysts are an example. They're numbered. There's no yeah, species the identification on them. Yeah, for sure. We know something about the environment of chrysophytes, cyst 31F or whatever. I don't know if that's an actual one, but 
nothing to do with which species, the uh, living species that uh, identifies with. So, but that doesn't mean they're not useful. And if we find no, species thirty-one F, yeah, exactly. It's kind of uh, that you can you do know, things without of, the perfect name associated with them. Or and there's always potential for that to become the name at some point when you figure out what what that species is. Yeah, but just in the meantime, it's like the scale. We don't know where it comes from, but when we do find it, this is the of, condition. But, yeah, exactly, for sure. Utility, but uh, still some holes, some gaps in the knowledge there, and then. The only thing I guess that we, we didn't say is that what makes you decide which bioindicator you're going to spend your time during this chapter of your master's degree or this first section of your PhD focusing on? Uh, what is it that makes you decide that, hey, I think this uh, environmental question is really well tuned to using Cladocera as the bioindicator, as uh, at least the primary bioindicator, uh, and that really the question uh, can, in many ways, drive what it is you decide to put that effort towards. Yeah, no, definitely tailing your indicator towards the environmental question you're trying to address, and uh, all these indicators have like a developed literature and methodology for looking at different things and that's why the world did not begin begin and end with diatom analyses or pollen analyses uh, um, more techniques were developed to answer a broader suite of questions what kinds of bioindicators are out there personally you know for what it's worth this is my show so i can say what i think but when i'm thinking of bioindicators i definitely think of the big three, um, which would be um, diatoms and Christophytes, kind of lumped together, it's salacious algae. Um, and then two groups of invertebrates, uh, the Clodosterans, which is the one that I really, I cut my teeth in paleo on. Um, and also in terms of invertebrates, chronomids, but then also lump calebrids in, in with them too. So, I don't know, should I give some background or would you like to talk a little bit about the diatoms and Christophytes? Whichever. What I mean, they are. Uh, what they are. Well, they're, yeah, well, go and read the Wikipedia on there and see what it's on uh, the golden brown algae or the heteroconts. Uh, and it probably will change while you are reading it because there's a lot of unknown and a lot of debate as to exactly where those species fall into the uh, the kingdom of, not kingdom in the true sense, but into all of the algae in the world. There's a lot of back and forth into the uh, taxonomy of these groups. There's a lot of uncertainty and, and that comes from just the fact that they've been studied for a long, long time and named a bunch of things over many years and, uh, and no one's really know exactly how well they are or how they're related to one another. In general, though, they are uh, autotrophic organisms. They are in the group heteroconts, uh, which are these golden brown type of algae. Uh, diatoms are uh, the more abundant of the group, and they're a really important group uh, in the marine environment as well. They, as a whole, produce something like 20% of the primary production on the planet, so they're incredibly important from a global um, production perspective. And the thing about them that makes them important for paleo, other than all those little facts I'm trying to draw up from the depths of my mind, is that they uh, leave these 
preserved uh, siliceous cell walls. So they're made of silica and biogenic silica that they secrete into their cell walls. And when they die and break apart in the sediments, that uh, silica is left behind and it's taxonomically distinct. So if we're breaking the two groups down, we have the diatoms, as I said, we'll get maybe to them after. I'll talk very briefly about chrysophytes. Chrysophytes are uh, another group um, and we mentioned them earlier in that they can be broken down in the sediments into two basic uh, remains that are found, the scales, and those only come from a couple of groups of the chrysophytes. So not all chrysophytes produce scales. And those that do are uh, holoplanktonic. So they are a planktonic group living in the water column. But all chrysophytes do produce, uh, produce cysts, and that's their resting stage that would spend time in the sediment uh, in order to overcome and to tolerate harsh conditions. Conditions and then reemerge into the uh, the water column. So those are what we would find in the sediment. They're often used as indicators of uh, pH uh, changes in the lake. Though there are other papers out there on on different environmental conditions. And uh, there's been a lot uh, more recently on using the scaled chrysophytes as a climate indicator because when these planktonic groups, so as water conditions warm, uh, stratification increases, and there's more thermal stability, greater uh, stratification, then we get more planktonic groups, which we see at the diatoms, but also with the scaled chrysophytes. So an increase in scaled chrysophyte uh, remains is a common indicator of uh, warming conditions. So that would be the chrysophytes. So I think of you as within the paleo realm as a diatomist. Um, have you done... Uh any other proxies yourself or any other bioindicators yourself or Beyond is that your bread and butter? Uh, by and far bread and butter. I've done some clodosera uh, work personally um, and then had some students work on other things. But uh, no, personally, sitting at the scope, I've looked at diatoms, other things that are on the diatom slides. So other salacious stuff, but mostly just enumerating or counting those and then clodosera. So yeah, so clodosera would be my, I guess... Now it's my focus is kind of split, but was my original uh, di- uh, indicator. Although I did, I did begin with diatoms. I knew so that. Done exactly I remember that. Yeah. Diatom count in my life as part of my undergrad thesis. So I never, we never really um, talked about bro- diatoms. So what? Uh, very briefly, then, uh, what what was that? What were you doing with diatoms in that project? I've forgotten. That was from the pad, wasn't it? The piece out the basket delta. Oh, it's pre-pad. Pre-pad. It's pre-pad. Yeah, it was with Roland Hall um, uh, when he was a very new professor at University of Waterloo, and he was he'd uh, come over from uh, Sweden and had a core from the Abisko region, right? right okay, and it was, so he was looking at uh, tree line migration in a high altitude lake with the idea then. It was a multi-proxy study. They were looking at other things, but they were interested in the tiatoms to see. They knew the tree line had moved above and below the lake over the last 10,000 years through the Holocene kind of period, I think. This is going back. I've not looked at that paper in a long time. And yeah, and I was tracking the diatom changes. That was the thing with diatoms uh, being so many, like being such a species group that they can be used and have been used for almost every kind of environmental reconstruction, whether it's pH, salinity, um, light availability, water temperature, you name it, you can probably find it in the diatom literature. So they're one of those groups that can be used for a lot of things uh, for good or for evil. 
Cool. So moving on to the, so we've done algae. What I, I mean, there are some obviously other algae that remain in the sediments. Um, and we'll talk to that in the sort of grab bag after the big three. Um, moving on to the cladocera where you, as you say, cut your teeth. Tell us about the cladocerans. Okay, so cladocerans are a group of the zooplankton, um, and we're getting a bit bigger than diatoms. You can make out some of the features barely on uh, some of the cladocerans just with your naked eye. So if you were to take a, you know, a glass jar of lake water, you definitely see some little things bobbing around in there, um, some microscopic organisms, um, and chances are some of those are going to be members of the cladocera. And um, by and large, for the most part, these are uh, um, grazers. So they're chowing down on algae like the diatoms. And there's a couple of predatory types. Um, but what makes these guys a fair bit different than the diatoms is that instead of whole individuals preserving the sediments, because we're going up a, a notch in size, these guys break down um, into separate parts like head shields and carapaces and post abdomens and whatnot. And so has its own identity identification challenges because you're never dealing with whole organisms. Um, but anyway, uh, these guys, um, can be used to look at changes in predation trends over time because you'll see things changing in the size structure or the species structure in, in relation to whether or not they're being, uh, there's like fish pressure on, um, with like large fish populations, um, chowing down on them. Um, some association with, nutrient conditions and acid conditions. But uh, what my main focus was, was in their responses to calcium decline, which in itself is a legacy of acid rain with some of these guys uh, quite, uh, I guess, calcium demanding relative to their peers and as such able to find, leave behind a, a legacy of uh, recovery from acid rain. Um, so yeah, so that'd be the cladocerans. And then rounding out the big three, also uh, another invertebrate group that I've done a fair bit of work with is uh, the coronamids, and then air quotes, and the chaobrids, which is a different group, but similar to the diatoms and chrysophytes that are often analyzed together. Uh, but the coronamids are a common to anyone that lives near me in Kingston in the uh, springtime yeah, here down too. by the water. Yeah, we get tons of them here on Lake Scugog. Yep. So non-biting midges, so they're a true fly. And the big swarms you have down by the water in spring, a lot of people often will refer to them as mayflies, which is totally incorrect because they're a separate thing. But just they'll call them that based on the time of year that they seem to pop out in like late April, early May. Yeah, thank God. Because full cl there are lots of mayflies, not so much here, but in uh, Lake Simcoe is notorious for having tons of mayflies. And they're so much bigger than coronavids. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, like like thousands of times bigger. Oh, for sure. In Beaverton, <laughs> where which is right on the the shore of Lake Simcoe, the buildings look rough. Like you could imagine they're shaggy from all the mayflies that are on the side of them. If that was how many coronamids there were, oh my God, people would never walk down by Lake Ontario or any of the Great Lakes. Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. Yeah. 
No, it's the old apartment building just uh, in, in the door wells to the main entrance at the back just because of the light that was there. Oh, yeah. And you'd get like huge piles of dead chronomans. Adam, so Adam and I used to do this uh, run at the move out weekend. So right at the end of April uh, in Kingston every year. And it would it was like you were taking in your protein while you were running along the waterfront for this uh, 10K run because of all the coronamids so they are abundant in aquatic ecosystems and that is so gross and i don't know why we continue to subject like ourselves four to that. years in a row we did that yeah, yeah. dumb yep dumb 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 that's good exercise but <laughs> but anyway the coronamids uh their their use they're benthic dwelling organisms and um so their main use that they're used for um is tracking uh, changes in oxygen conditions in the hypolimnion of lakes. And so this really gets at where different, or as an example of different bioindicators being useful for different things, because by and large, the, the iatoms are photosynthetic. They require to be in the light to survive. So they're not going to give you much information about what's going on at the bottom of the lake, where it's completely black and frigid. Um, whereas the uh, chronomids, the, the opposite of that, you know, they only uh, they spend most of their time in the water, some of them uh, down deep, some of them less so, but basically only come up to the surface to emerge. Some people might be familiar with the chironomids from certain species that are that bright red color, the blood worms that I think people keep them to or buy them to feed to their fish and their fish tanks, things yeah. like that. I did that historically as a kid. Oh, really? I've never Just I've seen pictures the of name them. And then found out much later that they were actually chironomids. Not worms at all, yeah. And then the last thing being the chaoborids, uh, which are the phantom midges, is their kind of uh, colloquial name for them. Uh, and they're a really interesting group. I've, I've spent a very little time looking for them under the microscope for one particular project. Uh, but the idea that they're a much less species-rich group, there's only a few species that are commonly found in sediments, and the key thing that they are used for is to track uh, and infer, uh, estimate, whether the lake has fish in it because certain species are big and uh well they're all quite big you can easily see them with the naked eye uh, but certain species are big and uh, easy prey for fish for, for planktivorous fish fish that eat the plankton uh, to pick out of the water column because they don't migrate down to the bottom so the visually hunting planktivorous fish will be able to easily eat away these species during the day whereas the other species will sink down to the bottom and then only come out at night to undergo the majority of their activities so if you find these species that are not migrating vertical migrators they are going to be the ones that don't coexist with fish so finding them would suggest that the lake at least in the habitat where you find the chaobrids is uh, probably fishless or has very low fish uh, abundance and one last thing to point out there is we've definitely gone up uh, size gradient talking about our personal big three organi organisms with the diatoms being truly microscopic, the cladocerans being, you know, you can make them out visibly, uh, and then chronomids like individual bloodworms, like no problem making them out yeah, with the like, naked In the centimeters, some of them can be. Yeah. And Chiabra is uh, massive. Well, that's no, what I was going to get at. So then uh, we didn't, I didn't really say, but the chronomids in terms of what preserves in sediments, you're dealing with like their head capsules. So only their head is uh, chitinized and that's the bit that remains. And then when you get to the chaobrids, you're dealing with just individual mandibles. So just like part of their 
yeah, feeding jaws. jaw apparatus. And those would be like the size of the whole head of some of the chronomids. It's amazing that you get bigger and bigger and bigger whole organisms and a smaller proportion of them preserve in the sediments. Well, I guess, you know, it'd be tough being a big thing made of glass. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Though there are some big diatoms. The, uh, uh, what's it called? The one... Didymo? Didymo, yeah. Uh, found... I don't know what the full name is. Me neither. Can't remember. Uh, but a very large diatom species. But by and large, they're much smaller than that. Cool. So that is the big three, at least from our background. Uh, when we were talking about this, we said that that's probably not true. And that if you were to pick the historically biggest paleo indicator, pollen would have to be a good candidate for one of the most common earliest used indicators in lake sediments. Um, but absolutely. But this is our podcast. Hey, oh, so no, I'm not saying that we can't do what we want. And so we can deal with pushback, but going forward, I think pollen is something I've never personally really worked with. Uh, we can lump in with other bioindicators that, you know, we know something about yeah, for sure. But if you're saying no, cowbreds aren't the, the big three indicators, we understand. But this is from our perspective. And, uh, and the nice thing that I think ties all of them together is that they are uh, autochthonous, they are in the lake itself. So they're telling you about conditions in the lake environment. Whereas when you get to some of the other uh, commonly used indicators, but maybe not the most commonly used ones uh, that we mentioned already, they can be coming into the lake from outside side of the the lake ecosystem itself and that can be a really important distinction for picking out the different indicators so there's a bit of method uh to the the madness of separating them out that way okay so in terms of like the other guys we mentioned pollen so that's pollen coming from the vegetation surrounding a lake giving you some idea of what's going on on a terrestrial level so that is very well studied um, then we're getting in, there's other things such as, uh, and I guess in a similar vein, plant ma- macro fossil. So chunks of other kinds of plants. Yeah. Everything else from plants that doesn't, that isn't pollen that can end up in the sediments, twigs and branches and all sorts of stuff. There's lots of people who are really, really interested in that as a way of giving you really diagnostic stuff about the species that it came from. And also because pollen trans- travels so far on the wind that uh, these larger macro fossils give you a better indication of the uh, environment right around the lake than the pollen is, which is more of a regional signal. And then phytolus, now this is one I'm much less familiar with, uh, is from within grasses. It's a... What is it? It's so um, phytoliths are interesting in that they're also found on. It's made of silica, biogenic silica. Uh, so you would see them occasionally on diatom slides, depending on where, or on diatom and chrysophyte slides, depending on where they are from. But it is the extracellular silica that's secreted into the the space in between cells for uh, a lot of different plant species, but it's very common in the grasses. Uh, so if you've ever taken a piece of grass as a kid and run it through your teeth or to, as you know, like you're trying to blow it like a reed, um, you would feel that it's that really rough texture to it. And that is the silica that's in between the thing. It gives it sort of structure without the formal structural uh, material that higher woody plants and trees uh, have to hold them up. And it also protects against uh, 
pathogen attack into the different cells. So it provides some support and, and features to the plant and the shape of the in- extracellular space uh, can be diagnostic as well. It can tell you about the plant group that it came from. And then keeping within the um, vegetative uh, remains, uh, another big one would be charcoal, which uh, especially with what's going on in Australia right now is uh, kind of top of mind Um, and because it is used often to track uh, forest fires. And it's always blown my mind that it can be diagnostic to a particular fire to event, some, some extent, based so there's on shape and size. Yeah, so there's uh, a bit of there's a bit of a dichotomy with uh, charcoal, and that a lot of studies look at the total amount of charcoal, just the accumulation of all charcoal in the sediment of all sizes, usually macroscopic. So they're from a method perspective, you bleach it or you treat it with some sort of chemical to change the color of everything in the sediment and then you count it under a dissecting scope so it's the largest particles and those would give you an idea of so there's always charcoal coming into the lake but when you get these peaks that would be associated with a fire there's also some work that's been done including at at queens on um microscopic charcoal so looking at the smaller pieces and how the different structural elements are associated with different types of fires and different severities of fires um and i'm not sure that it's taxonomically distinct as to the species it comes from though of course if it's not completely combusted you would be able to get the same macrofossil kind of information as you would uh from a normal macrofossil but it can give you an idea of the fire environment and the transport environment whether it's been weathered and reworked uh, before it got to the lake then going further down the list of things that I have very little familiarity with. Uh, We have testate amoeba, which I personally associate with like peat kind of studies. Yep. I'm not sure where else they use or how well they preserve in They're found in in other environments and these are amoeba, so single-celled organisms that um, create houses for themselves and uh, so they build these structures that they live in and that's the test. And when they dissociate, they can either, you can either find the whole test and be able to see sort of which species group that came from or you can find the plates themselves individually so that just like the scales of a chrysophyte break apart it's not the whole organism you have individual scales you can find the plates that originally made up the test that the amoeba uh, produced for itself but you're right that historically you find them associated with different ph environments but also really important the different uh uh, because they're amoeba, the different um, environments in terms of moisture availability. So you'll find ones that are more um, more commonly found in really wet environments and drier environments. And so they're common used to track the movement between truly aquatic, semi-aquatic, kind of partial terrestrial environments. Then on going down our list, we have ostracons, which again, I don't know how much I'm going to show again how much broader Josh's knowledge is, is than my own or how much better research he is, but I personally associate them with isotope studies, kind of getting outside of the uh, um, kind of a crossover in terms of bioindicator. I don't think of them too, too much as individual biological studies and more of them a source for grinding up for isotope analysis. Yeah, they, they exist. They're more commonly found in the marine literature or in the brackish water literature. So looking at uh, like 
coastal lagoons. That's not to say there aren't freshwater ostracots. That's certainly not the case, but they haven't been as well utilized for the kind of classical limnolo- paleo-limnological analyses, primarily because they would indicate the same kind of things that diatoms do. So diatoms have already filled that niche. Whereas in the marine um, kind of brackish realm. Uh, they're really important indicators of salinity and you can get really good information on salinity uh, environments, but they're bigger than the diatom. So while you can blast away at an individual or a kind of refined group of diatoms for isotopes, as Adam just said, an ostracot is bigger. So it's easier to be able to do that with a little more accuracy without needing as much uh, pre-processing. So they are commonly used for their, uh, the composition, the particularly the oxygen composition of their um, shells, I guess. Okay. And that's beyond the scope of today's bioindicator analyses. We'll leave that for a chemical indicator. Yep. Analyses another day. Exactly. Or physical we, indicator, we need, another, I guess. we need another whole episode to talk about the, just the isotopes almost. But uh, I think in my list, you know, going to have any pushback on the big three what else would you add to our longer list there i've kind of covered everything that i never really think about yeah i think so uh there are a few other things that you see on slides that probably aren't i mean if i'm thinking like looking through I know you can't see me because I have my eyes closed, so I'm like looking through a diatom slide. And the only other thing you might see are freshwater sponge spicules or things like that, but they're very poorly uh, identified. Orobatid mites are found in the in various other insect remains. Beetles um, will leave certain remains behind. I mean, it's not uncommon to find fish autoliths. So to say that all these things are invertebrate or uh, algal uh, would be not entirely true. They're very rare compared to diatoms or even clitocerans. But they do exist. You can find autoliths, the ear, inner ear bone, for lack of a better uh, word, of fish in the sediments. Um, I don't know. I think we're getting pretty close to the end of the commonly used. We're getting into some really esoteric stuff. We've probably forgot something really big. Yeah. But anyway, the list is long enough. And so the idea is there's lots of stuff to choose from out there. And you tailor your method and analysis to what you're looking at. Because obviously, as it kind of got in a little bit in the diatoms versus the chronomids, they live in different areas of the lake. Some of these guys live in the open waters, some of them in the uh, sediments, different types of lakes. Um, So they'll tell you different things about the environment. And what you look at really depends on what you're interested in. And if you're looking at uh, a case... (laughs) A study looking into the acidification history of a lake, then probably uh, chronomids is not going to be your first choice. Yeah, or pollen is uh, probably not where you're going on that one. No, you're going to zoom in right on the diatoms. And conversely, if you're interested in changes in the tree line around the lake, then pollen would be your go-to. Um, or if you're cha- interested in, you know, the calcium conditions in the lake, clodosterins, yeah, oxygen, the fish availability, or fish uh, community, rather. Yeah, diatoms and chrysophytes are not going to be all that helpful there. Yeah, and so this is why so often um, you look in the literature and so many studies have multiple bioindicators in use 
tracking their changes through time that has to be together. That has to be so much more common than it used to. I mean, I don't know that anyone's ever gone and looked at the number of indicators that are common in a sort of meta analysis framework to look at papers from the seventies to sixties and see how many different things were identified in that paper. And I would bet though, and I don't think it would be hard to imagine that as we get to more common, more recent papers, Papers with only one indicator in them have to becoming becoming rarer in the literature because we live in a complicated world where there's lots of different things going on in the lake. I, I probably actually an interesting thing to knock out because, like, the flip side of that is looking at a core for a single organism and writing that up is so much easier than coordinating multi-proxy analyses. So you've got this push-pull. Like, yes, percentage-wise, it's probably uh, way higher than it was historically. Or there are more multi-proxy analyses than there were historically. But has it changed historically just because there's more papers out there that maybe, maybe it hasn't changed them. I would, I, I would actually be kind of, I'm not interested in doing that work, but I would actually be interested in seeing that work just to see uh, from a, uh, the point of view of how have, has things changed over the last, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe years. Yeah. I think you're right in that as a proportion, multi-proxy papers where more than one of these things is looked at would probably have been very rare 40 years ago. And now, as a proportion, they would be higher, uh, but there are still lots and lots of uni proxy papers. Is that what he would say? It? One proxy papers out there, um, and single proxy. single proxy that makes more sense. Uh, and nothing against them. You don't have to have multiple proxies. If, if it's a story that is well told and it's simpler with one uh, one of them, then that works. So the. Final thing uh, I think we could talk about today in our little exploration of bioindicators would be some of the more exotic stuff. And, you know, if I had a little familiarity with things like ostracods, now we're getting in the region of stuff that I know the words and not too much more. But you definitely, again, breadth of knowledge is uh, pretty good. Beginning even with sterols and stanols, you've done some of this stuff yourself, Oh, that's right? not true. I've been in the lab while someone has uh, done that. So at, when I was at the University of Ottawa for a little while, um, they're a lab that's derived or that's um, centered more around chemical uh, indicators in sediments. And one of the things that uh, sort of came <laughs> into the lab in terms of a method while I was there or just before I was there was the use of sterols and stanols. So these are um, chemical molecules that are so not a biological remain in the same way as anything we've talked about before, but that are linked to the presence of organisms. And the most common sterol that everyone's familiar with is cholesterol or cholesterol is how most people refer to it, uh, which is produced by all animals. And so the presence of cholesterol in the sediment would indicate that animals had uh, been in the catchment and primarily the method for those to get into, so cholesterol is in all of your all of our cell membranes. It provides structure to the cell membrane, and it's an important biomolecule. Um, but the primarily way, that, primary way that they get 
out of the body is, um, unless you render a body down in the lake, is through the fecal matter. Um, so they would indicate AKA the poop in the poop. Yeah. So you would, that would indicate that uh, there had been animals living in the catchment. And, and while that is a sterile that is uh, ubiquitous in animals, there are plant steriles, cetosteriles, and there are uh, steriles and stanols, which are another group of closely related molecules that uh, are more indicative of different groups. So there may be higher mammal steriles that are only indicative of, at least in an environmental setting, unless there are apes in the catchment, which is very unlikely, of humans being in the environment. And that's commonly been used uh, and becoming more uh, commonly used for tracking uh, uh, historic indigenous groups, paleo uh, Inuit and the uh, precursors of the Inuit who have moved around the Arctic. There's some work on that. And then also used to track organisms uh, like birds and their influence because their abundance can uh, produce a lot of poop, uh, which can then be indicated in the sediment. And we also have eDNA, which um, is basically a measurement of the DNA, raw DNA in the bulk sediment. So genetic information from everything you can possibly find, which strikes me as being incredibly difficult. A few conversations I've had with people that are working on this is just separating the signal from the noise because so much stuff is present from so many different groups coming in from so many different avenues. But uh, I think as computing power builds up and they're able to amplify stuff and separate and analyze this information, uh, it's going to be a bigger and bigger thing going forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and there's lots of ways you can go about doing that. I think, um, some are, you're looking for very specific groups. So you have primers for their genetic sequence that you are tailored and you're searching out. But as we get better and better with our, uh, resolution of finding these things, it's more common to apply what would be considered a shotgun approach where you just, fire all of the information into a computer and start to just pull out everything that's there. So we did that a little bit in, uh, at Ottawa U with bacterial, um, DNA work in order to see whether there were groups in particular, we were interested that were uh, capable of processing hydrocarbons. So we just put all this uh, information from the sediment and also from the water into, uh, uh, the pipeline uh, effectively in order to see what was there and pick out the the species that their genetic material was there. It doesn't really tell you if they're active, if they're upregulated, but they do give you an idea that there's the presence of their genetics in that environment. And I guess one of the big things, I guess holding it back, but as time ticks forward to be the libraries that this uh, information is measured against. So the more of these studies that are done, the more complete the libraries that you're able to test your own sample against become. So it's just a matter of time. Like it might be a long time, but eventually you get it. Like there's a, there's a massive future. Yeah. The more targeted studies, the more targeted studies and laboratory studies that give you that uh, material to compare against the library uh, allows those uh, untargeted type of uh, analyses to be much more powerful. That's always the problem is identifying. It's not, especially for newer sediments, finding what's there. It's saying what the heck that uh, uh, corresponds to in the actual environment. Um, the the one thing about DNA that always is a, um, the main holdback is the preservation of DNA in the sediment environment sediments especially for DNA that's not contained within the organism's remains still, that's free DNA, uh, is a, a 
bit of a challenging place and they're getting much better at fixing those holes and pulling those things out, but there still is a temporal constraint on, on how long things like that can preserve, at least for now. Do you have any sense of like, again, I'm so far to my wheelhouse now, both the eDNA, like, is there any such thing as a Holocene eDNA study or is there a like hard cap on time for how long it sticks around in the I'm not sure I've ever seen one that long. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I would be able to guess off the top of my head uh, what the oldest one. I certainly have seen well uh, studies well into the 200 plus uh, year range for viable DNA. Uh, not viable as in you can create a dinosaur from it, but uh, viable as in uh, can be identified. And then uh, what is the last thing on on my list here is something that we've uh, done a little bit of in the lab that my wife Jenny Carosi runs at uh, York University is interested in is plant lignin. So one of the interesting things about that we said earlier about pollen is that, you know, you get this huge regional signal and it's hard to say what was right around the lake. And then also um, one of the things about pollen is aquatic organisms don't produce a lot of pollen. Aquatic plants don't produce a lot of pollen compared to trees. So one of the things we can look at are, or are molecules that are truly indicative of plants, things like lignin. So that's a molecule that's only produced in plants. And so the presence of these are truly indicative of higher plants in the in the catchment, not from algae. And closely related to that are alkanes. So alkanes, if you remember back to your chemistry, are you know long chains of hydrocarbons. Uh, and we call them N-alkanes, and the N just means how many there are. So the longer the chains, they tend to be associated with higher plants. So algae will produce short-chain alkanes, and um, reeds and sedges and things that are kind of semi-aquatic will produce middle-length ones, and then higher plants will produce really long ones. So you can look at the alkane chains in the sediment and they'll tell you about the plants and whether so we use these to track lake expansion so as a lake gets bigger it floods the terrestrial environment so there's going to be a greater proportion of incoming material to the sediment when those plants drowned and all of their alkanes entered into the lake we would see that in the uh, in the sediment record that was my last one and the, that i could think of as a link between between living organisms and the chemistry okay and so, yeah, so I think we've gotten all the way through our list as our introduction to bioindicators, that stuff I know a lot of, some of it I know a lot about, some of it I know next to nothing about, but I think it's a pretty decent list. And uh, a key takeaway is the biological remains are just one subset of the information preserved in sediments. There's a whole lot of physical and chemical information that we've not even touched on in this discussion that we can save for another day. Um, yeah, an interesting and, one for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, again, we'll talk about next time uh, the information within the sediments that is used to date the sediments, um, which is often the linchpin that all these analyses are built in. It's, it's one thing to know that species A changed to species B, which may or may not be interesting on its own, but it's critical to know when that happened if you're trying to tie it to a particular event around the lake, whether it's acid rain, a massive flood event, um, a mine, you know, initial land clearance. And then if you don't have the dates, then, you know, what are you really talking about? Yeah, for sure. 
It's only, it's not always that you can independently identify the timing of those kinds of changes. Uh, having a fixed chronology is a, a really key part to the power of paleolimnology. Okay. So I think we're done with episode two. And so um, as we move along with this podcast, we now have our very own website, which is basically a just uh, been tacked onto my own, but it's uh, can be found at core ideas, all one word, dot ca. You'll just have to Google it for now. Um, and for uh, contact us directly with um, questions or ideas for uh, topics or even hate mail, anything really, just prove that we're not talking just to ourselves. Uh, you can reach us at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Which indicators did we forget or which ones do you want to hear more about? I'd be interested in researching some of the ones that we just completely glossed over or butchered, whichever it was. Uh, so yeah, hit us up with an email if something is interesting or contact one of us directly. All right. Until next time, this has been Core Ideas and uh, we hope to see you again soon.